Hi there, I'm Deborah Kimmett, and welcome back. Um, today we've got an interesting broadcast for you about public service, and uh, I certainly know about that. I grew up in Napanee, Ontario, and my whole family was in municipal politics. My uncle was the fire chief, my cousin was a building inspector, and my mama ran the roads. Standard joke in the Kimmett household. Now, my dad was called Jim, and he was the township clerk. And my dad, you know, would smoke a cigarette, waving at everyone like he was running for mayor. But he was the township clerk. And to the outside eye, you would think nothing's going on in Richmond Township. But dad always thought it was an underground web of mystery and intrigue. And my dad had these great friends who he impressed with his wit and wisdom. And he had lines about the government, which was, you know, if it moves, they tax it. If it keeps moving, they regulate it. If it stops moving, they subsidize it. I found out later he stole everything. And if he existed today, he would have been shredded on the Twitter feed. But what I loved about my dad is no matter what happened, he got knocked down and he got up again and said yes to new things. And he always wanted to make our township better. So he decided one time, bright idea, that he would start collecting money for the dog tags, right? You know, because that had never happened. And, and the other bright idea was to get his kids to sell those dog tags door to door. And, you know, it would be called nepotism today, but it's really child labor. And I have to say, I learned so much about the public when I sold dog tags, like people lie barefaced, you can hear barking coming up the driveway, you can see a bowl of kibble, pillow full of dog hair at the door, and people say, no, there is no dog here. Now, my sister hated the lying so much, she tried to trick them and put red meat in her pocket, and then one of the dogs ended up biting her, and she had to get rabies shots. Hmm. Of course, we complained, and Dad told us we were the ambassadors for Richmond Township. Anyway, I learned that people didn't just get upset about dog tags. They got upset about frontage property and sewers, and oh my gosh, it was crazy. And they certainly weren't very civil to the civil servant. Well, someone that knows what I'm talking about on a much bigger level has been in civil service her whole career. Our guest today was once a school board trustee, a former minister of education, campaigned for the minimum wage being raised, reformed sex education, and she has been and lost the premiership of Ontario. Please welcome Kathleen Wynne, former premier of Ontario. Hi, Kathleen. How are you doing today? Deb, I'm fine. Thanks for having me. I love all those books in the background there. Uh, you've got a lot of reading on your plate. There's there's a lot of reading going on right now. Yeah, I'm, uh, but it's fun. I really enjoy it. I'm uh, helping out with some, a book award. So I get to do a read a whole bunch of new political books. It's very exciting, actually. Are you a person who likes to read in the morning with your brain being fresh or do you do late night reading? Um, no, I, I read pretty much any time of day. Just it's for me, it's having the quiet that just the mental space. And I find if I, if I do the, th the, do the things that are the obligations, and then I can get to reading, it's, uh, then I can, they can, I can take it in. So 
Yeah. yeah. I find that the biggest luxury of this part of my life. I get to read unabashedly. Um, so we know a lot about you on a public level, and but I realized I don't really know a lot of other things, and I thought I'd ask you a few questions just about your history. Uh, first off, where did you grow up? I grew up just north of Toronto in what was then a small town, Richmond Hill. It's kind of just part of the metropolis now, but um, my parents moved there in 1953 when I was born. My dad was a small town doctor and there were about, you know, 15 to 20,000 people there. Um, So it was, it really was a, a small town. You knew everybody and went to school with the same kids all through school. And uh, it was a good, it was a good place to grow up. Yeah. I grew up in a small town called Napanee and, mm. uh, it's funny because when I grew up in a small town, you really were isolated in a way that I don't think kids are today because they have the internet. But how did those um, early years shape you as a person? What do you think living in a smaller community like that gave you? Well, I think there were a bunch of influences, Deb, that um, I think the, the small town feeling of knowing people and we belong to the local United Church and I was part of the community. Um, and when there were when there were challenges in the community, you know, I watched my mom and dad take part in finding solutions. So there were, you know, it was the 60s when I was growing up and there were lots of kids who were at loose ends and my mom and dad started or worked with a group of people to start a a youth drop-in center, you know, a youth aid center. And um, I watched mom go to the social planning council and make arguments. So, so I think um, the levers of power, if I can say, you know, we're close at hand in a small community. And, um, and I always, I watched my parents be part of, uh, be part of that. Um, but, you know, beyond that, my own family, I think that um, I was, mm. I'm the eldest of four girls. Mm. And um, the sister next to me, who was about 20 months younger than me was very ill from the time she was young. So a baby. So I think growing up um, with a, a, an ill sibling, really, I don't know, it formed my thought about how the world works, you know, uh, how school works, because she didn't do well at school and she she fell behind and there weren't services to support her. So I'm I'm absolutely convinced that one of the reasons that I got involved in politics was um, because I had seen the unfairness of the education system and public education was really what drove me. So those were very important formative years. Yeah, sure. And and. When you look back, I know we see things differently as we get older and we look back. What quality, what are your best qualities that you inherited from your mom? I think I'm fundamentally optimistic, Deb. I think that, you know, even though even though we are Irish, you know, my mom's my mom's name was O'Day and my middle name is O'Day, and certainly the black dogs can get at me. Um, but fundamentally, I believe that there are solutions to problems. And there's a way if we try that we can make a situation better. I mean, quick story, my mom, um, my dad, as I said, was a a family doctor, and he cared for some kids with pretty severe disabilities, kids, I mean, teenagers and a little bit older, who were living sort of in the back rooms of a long term care home at that time It was called the villa. And one day, mom, dad came home from work and said to mom, you know, I heard I heard these kids singing. She said he said, you know, there were 
they had some nice voices. My mom was a singer. She'd been a professional singer before she had kids. And so she formed a group. There was a woman in town who was a pianist, Jesse Morrow, and she and mom um, formed this group called the Villa Tones. They traveled all, all over Ontario. They raised money to buy a van for these kids in wheelchairs to uh, to tour. And uh, as a kid, I was part of that. You know, I would go to the concerts and help. I mean, there's a picture of me helping Bev on with her shoes. So um, I think that that fundamental optimism prepared me really well for my my future life. Right, right. And was there a quality of your dad that you felt you inherited? Or did you? Yeah, so my dad was, he was the most honest person I knew. I know, you know, he, to a fault, he would tell you what he thought, you know, he had strong opinions. He was, he was very political in terms of, you know, he would run, he would rush home at uh, lunch to watch the Watergate, the Watergate hearings, you know, I mean, he was very, very interested in the political world. He, he was a member of the Ontario Medical Association and served uh, on their governing council at one point. So I think that that sense of the bigger world and the, the political context in which we lived um, was, uh, was what I got from it. And a curiosity about that, you know, and an interest in that. And when I got into politics, he was the one who came and knocked on doors with me and was enthusiastic about, uh, about my political life. That's cool. I, my dad and mom were, um, you know, they were born uh, in the thirties and married in the fifties. And my mom's family was super liberal and my dad's family was super conservative mom was catholic irish dad was protestant irish wow and family events like i laugh when people say they can't get along with opposite people i'm like my whole life was arguing politics but i mean people took it seriously like one time as a joke they put a liberal sign on my conservative grandfather's lawn and they freaked out and then you know, but I said, was fun. My dad was like your dad, honest to a fault. And he was in municipal politics, but he would go. He was the treasurer for the MLA, uh, James Taylor, Jim Taylor. Oh. And uh, he was his treasurer. And then he would take my grandpa on my mom's side to the liberal picnic. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. We had this, this juxtaposition of argument and, and, did that, were you, was your family political like that from the start? We were, it was very, it was a very argumentative household. You know, yes. we could make an argument, we could make an argument out of anything. <laughs> and we did. <laughs> the dinner table was always, it wasn't a dinner table where anybody was lecturing anybody else, but we were challenging each other, you know? And um, I mean, we were, we were fighting for things like, I mean, I tell the story of my first political action being when I was in grade nine, um, you know, leading the charge of girls to get us to be allowed to wear pants. You know, we weren't allowed to wear pants. We went to school. I started high school in 1966. We had to wear skirts. We, you know, so I had to, I had to have that conversation with my parents and they were very supportive. I mean, if anything, dad was a liberal, mom was a, an NDP or most of the time. Um, I guess she voted liberal when I was in office, but I don't know for sure, maybe. Um, but they were, yeah, it was a very argumentative place. And mom, we didn't have extended family on mom's side. She had grown up in Nassau 
her father had come from Ireland and gone to the States and then gone to the West Indies. And she was shipped up to school um, when she was 13. She was shipped up to school in Toronto. And she and dad met when they were in their teens. And her parents, she'd been orphaned when she was 10. So I didn't know that side of the family very well. Um, but my my dad's side of the family, we were very close to. And they were, they were political. Um, yeah. My grandma had been a teacher in Northern Ontario starting in 1907, you know. And she had, she had really strong ideas about how the world should work. So we had, we had lots of great discussions and there were tempers. My dad also had a temper. And so we would get, we would get very emotionally involved in our arguments. And there was a time when they, mom and dad were getting ready to leave the United Church because they were fed up with the politics of the church. And it was a really heated time because I was staying in the church. I was a young teenager and, um, and we, you know, we would go back and forth on, uh, on the, the value of that community involvement. So never a dull moment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the place to hold an argument, um, we didn't uh, stay mad. My dad always fixed everything with pie, but I thought that it's an interesting thing growing up in a family where you could debate stuff. And um, there was arguing. It wasn't always pleasant, but it was it was good for me. I found that really helpful for me to open my mind. Um, and Deb, you know, I think you know when I um when I got involved in politics, and I'd been involved in school politics and so on. But when I got involved in politics, the the notion of conflict or a heated argument didn't scare me. You know, no. it wasn't it wasn't something that was foreign to me. And I knew, like you, I knew you could get through it. And whether it was pie or whether it was I don't know, watching Bonanza, you know, something, something would allow the family to come back to ground or Ed Sullivan. Right. So, um, so I was, I was never afraid of conflict. And, uh, and in fact, I think that I kind of sought conflict out. And that's when I was um, in the 1990s, before I got involved in politics, I actually became a trained mediator and did conflict mediation in schools and in, um, and in the community, because I kind of, I kind of would, as I said, I would seek out conflict, and I needed to find a way to deal with that. That must have prepped you in such a way to be a mediator for what you had to go through later on politically. It helped me enormously. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think yeah. we ever got to the mediating part in our family, but I always felt like that would have been such a good quality to have, especially in the public career that you had. I thought that would yeah. be an amazing thing. You know, um, I teach these uh, writing classes and uh, you said that you were attracted to conflict, but one of the things we discuss in the memoir class is how does disobedience play into your journey as a person? Like you almost have to say no to certain things to find out who you are in those formative years of between teenage and twenties. So you protesting for pants, not leaving the United Church, that kind of inner knowing of what you want to do and then breaking, disrupting, they call it today. But mm -hmm. did that play a part back then or was that something that came later? Because it seems like you had to have this kind of, I'm not going to do what the average person says. Yeah, so that, that's a really interesting question for me because as the eldest child of four girls, um, I actually was probably the most obedient one. You know, I probably in, in my family context, I, um, I felt like I had 
and this isn't just in retrospect, is as I was growing up, I had a lot of responsibility. Um, not that my mom, not that my mom abdicated responsibility at all, but you know, I was eight years older than my youngest sister. And so I kind of helped bring her up, you know, I would sing her to sleep when she was going to sleep and stuff. So, so I had that role and I was, I was kind of a nerdy kid. Like I wasn't, um, I wasn't totally social and that's a whole other, that's a whole other discussion, but but outside of the home, the, you know, the things that I've talked about, the pants, the, um, the, the church, the, you know, we formed a committee at school. I remember called, it was a student staff relations committee. You know, we were, we were trying to improve the communication between the student body and the, the administration. We invited women's livers up to, and we called them women's liber, you know, women's liberation, women's livers up to Richmond Hill High School. And I took a lot of flack from the boys and even some of the girls in the school for being part of that. So I, I was expressing my disobedience outside of the home, but I got the courage to do that by watching how my parents functioned. And That's mom great. was quite a contrarian, you know, she, yeah. she wasn't prepared to take yes for an answer sometimes, you know. <laughs> I love that. No, yeah. I will not take yes. Yeah, we would. That's, that's our family, and I'm the oldest of six, and I was in that same position. Mm-hmm. But uh, doing what they said I couldn't do. Obviously, I did some things that really weren't worth doing. But later on, you realize that ability to just not listen to all the objectors of people yeah. saying no to you is what forms you. And as a female in particular, I felt like compliance was what they would have liked better. Um, well, my mom wanted defiance as long as it wasn't against her. But you realize, like, I, I was the opposite. I left the church at 15, and that killed my mother. But the point was, my mom really raised us to be independent. So it's an interesting quality that you... Well, and, you know, you left the church and your parents stayed. I stayed. That was the act of defiance. The act of defiance was staying in the church when my parents were so against what was happening. There was a young minister who was being kicked out. And I was upset about that. But I had a I had a community in the church and I wanted to stay. So, so yeah, I mean, what we're both talking about is those acts of defiance that allowed us to build a strong sense of ourselves. That's, that's how I feel about my, my childhood. And I was, I was allowed to do that. I mean, we were, we were free in our family to do that because we could come to that table in the dining room and we could have the debate, you know, um, and not be afraid that we were going to be silenced. That's great. That's great. So you um, go into politics you were a mediator first, and then you. What's the next piece in that, in terms of your evolution as a activist person in the public life, so to speak? Well, there were there were a bunch of years before that. So I did a master's of linguistics and a master's of education throughout my uh, my twenties and into my thirties, and. The Masters of Linguistics was really formative for me because the thesis that I wrote was, um, and I didn't go on to do a PhD, so I'm not proclaiming that I'm an academic, but but the the paper that I wrote for my master's degree was on a, a grammar of English spoken by a group of kids um, who lived on the reserve called Constance Lake, north of Hearst in Ontario. And it was it was really important to me. I carried that with me throughout my political career because what I got through that was um, what I learned was that the the 
teachers in Hearst, when these kids would come off the reserve, they had much lower expectations of these indigenous kids, these First Nations kids, because of the dialect of English that they spoke. And the dialect of English that they spoke was perfectly systematic. It was complete, but it was colored by Ojibwe and Cree, you know? And so, um, so I just, I just mentioned that. And then my husband at the time and I moved to Holland. I had three kids. I had two kids in Holland. Then I came home and had a third kid. And so I was working part-time teaching English as a second language. I was in and out of the workforce. I taught language skills at Humber College. And then in the 90s, I did, uh, I did that mediation training course. And really, Deb, the political moment for me, even though I did run for office in 1994, I ran to be a school trustee in 1994. I didn't win that election. I lost by 72 votes. But then in 1995, when Mike Harris was elected, and really having that conservative government in Ontario that to my mind was changing the rules of the social contract, you know, taking money out of publicly funded education, taking money out of healthcare, and at the same time saying that they weren't, you know, um, I really, really objected and the relationship between the province and the municipalities changing, the forced amalgamations, all of that really, I felt was very, very wrong. And that was the trigger for me to become an activist. And between 95 and 2003, when I ran, um, again, as a, to be a, a provincial member, I was really involved in pushback against what was going on at the provincial level. Right. So you're involved in pushback and you're trying to help the province, the community. What did you face at that point before your premier? What was the stuff like the the obstacle the obstacles you came up against? Because what I always found about you and all women that seem to run for politics, it just gets on this personal, ridiculous level of mm-hmm. personal effrontery. How did you did you just keep going and not let that affect you, or was that something you go? Were you surprised by the? Well, I, you know, I mean, every, every campaign we ran, Jane and I, my partner, Jane and I, um, there was a homophobic theme. So I came out when I was 37. So I didn't run for office until I was already an open, openly gay, openly lesbian um, candidate. And so being a woman and then being a lesbian, there were tons of people who were prepared to say, I shouldn't be running. I shouldn't run for the school board because I'm a lesbian. You know, I can't win in that riding. I remember, you know, people saying to me, you should move out of the neighborhood because we lived in North Toronto in this, you know, fairly, fairly conservative neighborhood. Um, And people saying, well, if you're going to run for office, you've got to move downtown. And I, you know, I just wasn't prepared to accept that. So I think those years of um, campaigning were about, um, not so much about convincing myself that I could do it. Jane and I always had a, we always had a backup plan and because you can always lose. It doesn't matter who you are. You can always lose um, an election campaign. But we were, we were quite prepared to lose every time we went in. You know, well, in 2003, when I ran as MPP, I was running against a provincial cabinet minister. In 2007, when I ran, John Tory, who was the leader of the Conservatives, came in. And I can tell you at that point, there were lots of people saying, go and find another riding. I said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to run to represent the riding that I, uh, that I have, have worked in. So, um, so there were always those forces at work. And the way I dealt with them, Deb, was I 
I listened to the critiques. I listened to the advice when it was hateful and when it was um, just vile, then, you know, you try not to listen. Remember it was, it was before social media had really taken off. So I'm talking about um, rally, not rally so much, but uh, all candidates meetings where, you know, moms would come with babies on their hips and say, you have no right to run for the school board with your lifestyle. And so I would be confronting that human being, which I actually think is easier than dealing with social media. Absolutely. And that's where, you know, to go back to the mediation training, I wouldn't, I wouldn't flare up, you know, I would try to listen to what they were saying and then play it back to them. And, and then just be very clear that, I was going to do what I was going to do. And they had a choice about whether they supported me or not. So my public persona was very calm. (laughs) Right, right. I was just wondering what you did at home, but I would be crying. Not so calm. I was like, I'd be like sucking my thumb in the corner. (laughs) But what, you know, um, you were in the United Church. Um, You were in that, that's a very socially mindful place, at least it is more today, and probably back when you were too. But did, where do you get, and I don't mean on a religious level necessarily, but do you got, did you get your faith from some deep belief inside that you were called to do this on some level, like just on a, because that like you, because I don't think you can just hear that all the time and not mm-hmm. think that you're, you've got a greater job to do here. If you're not constantly coming back to that place inside of yourself that's driving you. Just forget the politics of that. But, yeah. Because otherwise you couldn't endure the kind of um, backlash and pushback all the time if you didn't really go. But my bigger goal here is. Yeah. And, and I think the church had, through my grandmother and through my dad, my mom not so much. Mom, like you, had been raised. She'd been raised by a Catholic parent and an Anglican parent, and she'd kind of She'd had this mixed bag of um, religious experience or organized religion. She wasn't as keen on organized religion as my dad was. Um, And my grandmother was, you know, she was a firm um, and strong member of the United Church women. She was, you know, she was very interested in the missions of the United Church, not all of which were wonderful, but she was, she was a very committed um, United Church member. So, and I spent a lot of time with my grandmother and I think through her, I got that sense that the church was um, the place where we could explore those ideas and would have an outlet for that kind of um, giving back. So I joined the CGIT, which was the, I guess it was called Christian Girls in Training. But Yeah, but I'm asking, yeah, is yeah. that where that core belief came that you were? Well, I don't think so. I think it came, I think it came more as a belief through my parents. I don't think it was about the organized religion. Um, I think it was more that um, the, the belief system in our family was that we had so much. We were so lucky yeah. and that it was our job. It was why we were here to try to try to give that back to help. That's where I got it from. So you're you're out in public, you're doing uh, very pu- public activities, getting feedback. What was your biggest sacrifice in over your life? What do you think your biggest sacrifice was as a person? Well, I think the I think what political life did was it um, it took me 
me away from my family in a way that I hadn't, that I thought I could control better. You know, I thought that for those 22 years that I was in elected office, um, I really, I really wasn't able to be with my family in the way that I had been in the past. And so I was the one who was always too busy to do things. And I, you know, I had to, I had to be very intentional about spending time with my family. Right. Um, you know, so it, it makes me, you know, it makes me kind of agitated when I hear people denigrate the notion that um, when a politician says, you know, I need to spend more time with my family. Yeah, sometimes it's an excuse. Sometimes it's a way out. But sometimes it's actually true that, you know, in order for this family to work, especially younger people, I was older, so it was different. Um, but you know, it's, it's a, it's a real thing in families. And I didn't, I didn't get the first few years of my first three grandchildren in the way that Jane did, because I just wasn't there. So, yeah. you know, well, it's, it's an interesting thing because you're always holding two truths, aren't you? Like you're, I'm doing well in the world. I'm doing this. I have to do this. And there's this other part of my life. I haven't got time. Yeah. And I find sometimes though, you know, we have to hold these really two complicated, complicated truths and navigate them. They're not black and white. And sometimes you can't have it all. And other times yeah. you want more on your family. And then when they're teenagers, you're glad you have a job. You're like, bye. See ya. Yeah. Go. Okay. So here's some, I want to just ask you a funny question. Maybe uh, what was like the funniest or silliest or stupidest moment in politics that you experienced? Or you went like, I cannot believe we're doing this, or <laughs> I'm sure there were many. <laughs> there were many. <laughs> one one day I was um so when I was first premier, I appointed myself Minister of Agriculture and Food because I wanted to um I wanted to send a message to rural Ontario that there was there was space for that conversation at the table and we were paying attention to what was going on in rural Ontario. It didn't work so much. Nobody really believed me because I was from downtown Toronto. But um, when I actually went out into the went out into the community, um, the the uh, farming community was quite welcoming. But one day I left I left home uh, dressed for a day of touring in eastern Ontario and and. <laughs> Towards the middle of the day, I found myself in a, a barn shearing a sheep and Jane saw a picture of me shearing a sheep online and freaked out. She's like, what are you doing? She was just, it was totally unexpected. So there would be those things that would happen during a day and I couldn't always predict. And my staff wouldn't necessarily have prepared us for that, you know, um, but there I was shearing a sheep. And then another time I was, um, I was actually in China and I was playing, I, there was a badminton game going on. And I was, I mean, I was 63 years old or something. And these young kids, and for anyone who doesn't know, um, there's a really strong badminton culture in Chinese schools. Anyway, um, my staff had arranged for me to join this game. It was ridiculous, Deb. These kids were 16. They were six feet tall. I'm 5'4". I don't have the proper shoes on. And I'm, fully, you know, trying to go for a shot. And my competitive self, I went for a shot. I went right down on my backside, wrecked my wrist. It was ridiculous. And it was one of those moments where I thought, okay, you're going to kill yourself because you're so stupidly 
competitive and you've got to get a grip. So that was another. So you you basically, um, you sheep shear, you play badminton in China, and then you deal with sharks in the political (laughs) ring. You're, You're multifaceted. Okay. So here's a fun one. When did you feel most like a hero in your life, whether it was with your own family or in your job, like where you went, I really felt great about myself. Um, what I did that particular time. Wow. That's a, that's a hard question. Um, a hero. Uh, first of all, I never felt like a hero by myself. There was always a team around me. And I really mean that, you know, I never, I can't remember a moment where I thought, okay, I just did this all by myself. Um, but honestly, Deb, the, the most poignant moments would be in my constituency office. So I'm talking about my, you know, political heroism. I remember one day this little boy came in with his mom. He was a kid who was on the autism spectrum and he had taken up baking and he was so proud of his baking. And he brought this whole array of, um, of baking into my office and he'd made some gluten-free things. And it was just, those are moments where, you know, the, it's completely private. Nobody knew what was going on, but this kid had wanted, he had known about me. He had, you know, he knew I was, he knew I was the premier and he wanted to show me what he was doing. There was another time when a kid came down to my office and he'd written a song and he, he wanted he wanted to sing this song for me and play a, a disc for me. So those moments were really, really important to me. And honestly, they were the moments where I felt most like this position that I'm in is important because people see me, whether it's a gay kid who feels supported or a parent or a grandparent who would come up to me and say, you know, it's so important to my daughter that you're there she's been able to come out because you are there. I mean, those are, those are moments you can't, you can't create. You have to just understand that, that they're important. Well, we're going to wrap this up, but I want to ask you one more question. We always, we're calling this downward facing broad. And um, obviously when you were shearing sheep, you were downward, but (laughs) is there one moment where you just go, boy, they pulled the plug on me and I didn't know how I was going to get back up and then tell us how you did get back up. Well, I think, I think the toughest moment for me was when we lost the election in 2018 Um, We lost it badly. And I feel, you know, I, in the middle of the night, I can still feel I'm downward facing, (laughs) you know, I mean, I can still get down there. Um, But, you know, walking back into the legislature, because I made a decision, Deb, that I was going to stay in the legislature for those four years, even though the party had lost the election, I had lost government, I had won my seat. And so I felt that uh, I needed to keep going. And Walking into the legislature, having been the premier and sitting in this tiny caucus of seven people across from a new premier who I really didn't have a lot of respect for in terms of his ideas. And I didn't think there were any ideas. That was very, very tough. It was humiliating. It was um, it was a very, very hard moment. And I I didn't know how I was going to manage it. I didn't know how I was going to get through those four years, but I did. And I did it because I had people around me. And honestly, the legislature and the, you know, my colleagues were pretty gracious 
And that's been, that's been my experience of when I'm down. Um, people are decent. They're, you know, 99.9% of people are decent. And especially when you're dealing with them face to face. So that's what, that's what buoyed me and uh, helped me get through. But it was a June and July of 2018 were not, not good, not good months for me. I remember I saw you in a clothing shop and all I wanted to do was go, could I hug you? <laughs> Cause I was like, you were picking, you go, is this a good color? And I'm like, Oh my God, how do you do this? Cause it was so such a blow for women being in politics. Yeah. I just found the cruelty of that was horrible. Were we in a, were we in a clothing shop together? Yes, on Bloor, and it was like a cotton. Yes, I know that blue dress I held up, right? Yeah, and in my mind, I mean, I dear, dear, your friend said that you saw it differently, but what I was going, I kind of went, I voted for you because I was just like, I, I just, I would, you know, two years before Hillary Clinton lost, and I'm like, this is our Hillary Clinton, oh, the women, right. but it was also just this, um, yeah, I mean. The liberals blew it, blah, blah. We know about the Hydro One. But you go, women are judged at such a cruel level and pushed yeah. through. And you kind of want to go out on a good note, you know, with your political yeah. career. But so many times that's not the way life is. And, well, and people have said to me, so, so I, you know, I became the premier in 2013 because Dalton McGuinty stepped down. And then we won the election in 2014. And by 2016, my polling numbers were going down and there were people who were saying to me, you know, you should, you should stop, you should get out of office, you should step down. And I, I just said, you know, I'm midway through my first term, really. This is my first term. I don't think you'd be saying that to a man, first of all. And secondly, we, you know, we've been in office for, well, it would have been, it was 15 years by the time. And there was nothing that I was going to be able to do to change that reality. People were, People were ready for a change. Now, I'm not denying Hydro One was a big issue. Um, there were, you know, there was stuff left over from Dalton's term, you know, the gas plants. That was those things were a real problem. But I felt an obligation to serve out my term and do the things that I believed in, you know. But you couldn't have if you'd stepped down, you wouldn't have won either. Like no, it would have been exactly. thing. Oh, good, she can't handle it. Uh, we're gonna end it, but I wanna say, is there one thing that you would like to pass on that uh, if you could tell somebody what they should really hold on to in these times, uh, what would be the thing you'd wish for people? Well, I, you know, I talk to a lot of people, a lot of young people these days and, um, and then older people who will say to me, why would you advise a young people, a person to go into politics? Why would you ever suggest that? And I, I just have to say, because you can make a huge difference in people's lives. You know, you can absolutely help people at that individual level and you can help people more broadly. Um, you know, we, we, did, we raised the minimum wage. We put in place a basic income pilot. You know, we put in place free tuition. We demonstrated that it could be done. We saw that people's lives changed because of policies we put in place. There's nothing like that. And so I really encourage, encourage people to think about politics, to pay attention. And if they are at all interested to get involved, that's my, that's my heartfelt advice. Because if good people don't do that, then we lose the thread of our democracy. Well, I think 
you have a very uh, hard time telling how wonderful you are, but just the fact that you went through that loss, stayed in government, didn't step down, even though you didn't get a cape at the end of it, I think you're very heroic. And um, I think you'll be looked backed upon and people will in retrospect see what a great job you did in many other fronts and um, as a politician and as a mom and grandmom and everything, I wish you only the best. Thank you so much, Deb. It's such a pleasure. Um, I have a huge respect for what you do. You're very brave when you get up on that stage. So well, it's, there's a similarity, isn't there? Yeah, there is. Politics. But I'm like you, like I just look at the audience like I almost look at it when they're not laughing, like, okay, well, you paid me. I'm not leaving. And I just stand there. And I remember yeah. used to bother me, but now I'll laugh all the way home. I'm like, that was so bad. But yeah. <laughs> there's just something about it. I said, it taught me how to fail. And I think that's very important. Absolutely. Um, I have to tell you one quick more story because it's about being on a stage. Um, towards the end of my term as premier, every press conference I would go to, every scrum, the, the reporters would all ask me, how does it feel to be so unpopular? How does it feel when your numbers are so bad? And honest to God, Deb, it was all I could do not to burst out laughing because I wanted to just say, it feels great. I love that people hate me. Like, what a stupid question you are asking me. Anyway. That's your motto on your gravestone. You'll just be, I love to be hated. That's what I crave. (laughs) And they just get on that tangent. Women's looks and... It, oh, it's it's just un it's unimaginative. It's unrelenting. But thank you so much for what you do for keeping us sane and making us laugh. It's just it's just been a pleasure to talk to you. Wow, I don't know. It's something you never think about. But you know, politicians lose elections, but you never think they have to go back into the place they've been most humiliated and do their job because she was still an elected official. She lost that 2018 election. And she went in and kept working. I I find that admirable. And like what? She didn't want to be called a hero, but that's a hero to me. And it's humbling to have that tenacity to keep doing what you have a vision for. Well, it's time to go. And as I always say, if you would subscribe, follow, or like us, it really helps us have people know that we're here. And even though we're not all there, we're here, if you know what I mean. And Let's follow Kathleen's advice. If you win some, you lose some. Ha <laughs> ha. Okay? All right. Until next time, I'm Deborah Kimmett. And she's a downward facing broad.